Welcome to the Cleaning and Crime Podcast. My name is Elise, and if you're wondering about the name, (laughs) I love to listen to true crime while I clean. So because cleaning and true crime are my two loves, I've combined the two. And every week I post a new whole house cleaning motivation video on my YouTube channel, See Elise. And in the corner of the video, I'm in a little bubble telling you about a true crime case that's interesting to me. So cleaning and crime. But for some, the cleaning footage is too distracting. Or some people just prefer to listen to their true crime and not watch it. If you want to check out the video version of today's story, be sure to check out my YouTube channel and you'll find a playlist of all of my cleaning and crime episodes. But if you just came here for the crime and not the cleaning, you're in the right place. I'm uploading my older episodes of cleaning and crime in podcast form. And once all the old ones are up and I'm caught up, my upload schedule will be weekly, the same day the video version goes up on YouTube. Some of the earlier episodes do have slightly lower sound quality than the newer episodes, and that's just reflective of improving my skills as I went, but also, in the beginning, I only ever intended for these to be videos. So as the episodes progress, hopefully you'll notice the sound quality improving. Trigger warning, this is a true crime podcast. Some episodes may be disturbing to some listeners. Be sure to check the show notes for each episode for specific trigger warnings. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. When my parents were here, I actually asked them, do you have a case from when I was a kid or from when you were growing up that stands out to you? And they both had such interesting cases that they remembered that happened basically where I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And it's funny how when something happens close to you, I don't know if it's the proximity or if it's the local news coverage or people around you talking about it, but all the details seem to burn in more when it happened near you. You know what I mean? And it was funny that this one case stood out to me that they told me about, which is what we're going to talk about today. And I realized I had just been talking about it with my in-laws recently too, but I didn't realize it was all the same case. I only knew part of it. So today I'm going to tell you that story that my parents told me about while they were here for Thanksgiving. And that is the story of Brian Dugan. Now this story is very multifaceted and parts of it were very popular in the media for years. So I'm going to do my best to tell you the whole story so we can get the whole picture. Because I only knew part of it until this week. Now this all happened in the early 80s in the Chicago suburbs where I grew up. And Brian Dugan's reign of terror led to a string of rapes, kidnapping, and murders. And two innocent men ended up on death row while Brian Dugan was free to go on killing. This case is a mess. (laughs) It's full of corruption and conspiracy. And if anything, it'll make you feel thankful for the forensic advancements we've made. (laughs) So that hopefully none of this will be happening anymore. So let's go back. Let's go back to a darker time. The 1980s. On February 25th, 1983, 10-year-old Janine Nicarico was homesick from school with the flu. Her parents both went to work and her sisters went to school. Her mother was a school secretary in town close by, so she was able to come home on her lunch break and check on Janine. The family lived in Naperville, Illinois, a nice suburb of Chicago, just minutes from where I grew up. I actually worked in Naperville for a couple of years. When Janine's mother came home on her lunch break to check on Janine, she was surprised when Janine told her that someone from the gas company had come to the door earlier that morning, and her mother chastised her for opening up the door to a stranger. She was like, don't go to the door when you're homesick alone. Like, Do not answer the door to strangers. She made Janine a sandwich and then she went back to school and she called home at about 1.30 p.m. to check on Janine again over the phone and all was well. But about an hour and a half later, Patricia, Janine's mom, got a disturbing phone call from one of her neighbors that told her that her daughter Kathy had come home from school to find the Nicarico's front door open 
the door frame was broken, there was a muddy boot print on the front door, and it looked like the house had been burglarized. But obviously more alarming than that, Janine was missing. The police were obviously called right away, Patricia called her husband at work, and they both rushed home. The police searched the Nicarico home, and they also searched the neighborhood for Janine. After not finding Janine after day one, the search was expanded. However, it would be two hikers that would find Janine's body two days after she went missing, along a popular walking path just outside of Naperville in the bushes, only a couple of miles away from her home. Janine had been raped, sodomized, and beaten to death and left in the bushes. It also appeared that she had been killed right after she was kidnapped from her home. Now, neighbors were questioned, and one neighbor said they remembered seeing a strange man in the neighborhood. He was a white man wearing wire-rimmed glasses and he drove a light-colored rusty car. Great description. Unfortunately, it didn't give them any leads. So after a few weeks passed, the Nicarico family put up a $10,000 reward for any tips that would lead to an arrest. $10,000, you say? That got the attention of 20-year-old Rolando Cruz, a known gang member from Aurora, Illinois. What happened next is a big old mess. <laughs> Cruz had the brilliant idea to go to the police station and just make up a bunch of shit in hopes of cashing in on the $10,000 reward. Not the greatest plan. <laughs> Essentially, Cruz went to the cops and he was like, hey, my friend, Alejandro Hernandez, a 19 year old from Aurora, Illinois, he knows a bunch of stuff about the Janine Nicarico murder. So Detective John Sam goes and finds Alejandro Hernandez and he questions him and Hernandez tells him that he was drinking beer with his friends in his car. His friends were Stephen Buckley and this guy named Ricky. Ricky who? Oh, I don't know. I don't know his last name. Just Ricky, you know, classic Ricky. Ricky confessed to us that he murdered Janine Nicarico. So police go and find Stephen Buckley and they're looking for Ricky. They can't find Ricky, oddly enough, probably because he probably doesn't fucking exist, but they find Stephen Buckley, okay? The other friend who was in the car with Hernandez. Detective Sam is interviewing Buckley and he shows him photographs of the crime scene. He shows him the Nicarico house. He shows him a picture of the muddy boot print on the front door. And for some fucking reason, I don't know why he thought this was a good idea, Buckley looks at the picture of the boot print on the front door and he's like, hey, I have a pair of boots with treads that look just like that. And the cops are like, yeah? Can we have them? And he was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> what are you doing? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. What was he thinking? What was, whose plan was this? Who came up with it? Who was in on it? Were they all three in on it? Did they think they could just make up this guy named Ricky and just make a bunch of shit up and they'd all get the 10 grand? Like what? Why did he give them his boots? You, oh my God. What are you doing? <laughs> I don't know who thought up the plan, but it was not well thought out and it is not working. It's blowing up in their faces. Now listen, Naperville, Illinois, this is the super upscale suburb of Chicago, full of white people and McMansions and a 10 year old white girl goes missing in a nice neighborhood in broad daylight snatched from her home. You better believe this was nationwide news. And the pressure, the political pressure to make a quick arrest, so after a couple of weeks of no leads, no suspects, suddenly a gaggle of gang members just falls in their lap. Excellent, arrest them immediately. What, no evidence? No, oh, no, we got a boot print. We'll make it work. <laughs> so the DA decided we need to make an arrest. We need to make an arrest right now. And we have no suspects other than these guys. So he came up with a theory. He came up with a story. Okay, so here's what happens. These guys, you know, they're, they're drinking in their car, right? It, it's Cruz, Hernandez, and Buckley. They're drinking and, and they're looking for a house to rob, right? And they see the Nicarico house and they break in, but they're surprised 
when Janine is homesick from school and not wanting to be identified, they kidnapped her and they raped her and they killed her. Great story, makes total sense. Except it doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> Even Detective John Sam was like, why are we still questioning these guys? I don't think they did it. I think they're just idiots. These guys had no history of sex crimes. Just a little bit of petty burglary crap on their records. This seemed more like a violent pedophile killed Janine Nicarico, not a couple of guys trying to not be identified. It didn't make any sense that they would risk taking her out of her house and killing her somewhere else. If they were really startled trying to preserve their identity, they would have just killed her right there in the house. You know what I'm saying? But the DA tells Detective John Sam, just keep interrogating them, just keep on them, and we'll test the boot print from the boot that Stephen Buckley gave us. So they send the boot to the lab, and the first lab did not write up a report. They just verbally told the detectives it's not a match. So they sent it to a different lab. <laughs> the second lab wrote a report saying the comparison of the boot to the boot print is inconclusive. So they sent it to a third lab, and the third lab wrote a report saying, yeah, I mean, it's probably the boot. Mm. Meanwhile, while they're testing the boot for several months, Detective John Sam has to keep interviewing these three guys, hoping that somebody's gonna confess, hoping that somebody's gonna turn on the others, and nobody does. Everyone just maintains their innocence. And after almost a year goes by, detectives decide they need to take a different tactic, and they get a, a lucky break, I guess, if you can call it that. Alejandro Hernandez's friend got arrested for a burglary, unrelated. And the police gave this friend a deal. They're like, we will drop the charges on you completely if you can talk to Hernandez and get him to confess to the Janina Carrico murder. So they take this poor idiot, they give him a box full of 10 grand in cash and they strap him with a wire and they put him in a room with Alejandro Hernandez. And he tells Hernandez by order of the police, so I totally got pinched for this burglary, right? But I know that my uncle, he killed a kid right and i told them about it and they're like if you tell us everything you know about your uncle we'll drop the charges on you and you can keep the 10 grand from your burglary because that's totally how police deals work right i bet if you tell everything you know about janine nicarico they'll let you off and you can keep the 10 grand that is so fucked <laughs> and hernandez is like that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I mean, look, these guys thought they could just fib a little and try to get 10 grand, you know, and it didn't work. And now they've been harassed for a year. They're in a pickle. And here's his buddy offering him a way to get out of his pickle. And he bought it. Unfortunately for Hernandez, he didn't have anything to tell. He didn't have information for the police. But he tells his friend, well, I'll take the cops to where we killed her to a farmhouse. So Hernandez takes police to like four or five different farmhouses, but he can't quite remember which farmhouse it was that they killed her in. <laughs> and Detective John Sam is like, I'm well fucking aware that there was no farmhouses involved. <laughs> what are we doing? But the DA was like, that sounds great. Farmhouse, maybe boot print, love it. Arrest them, arrest them all. <laughs> oh my God. So despite no real evidence, no real confessions, maybe some bullshit farmhouse, a year after Janine's death, all three men were arrested, Cruz, Hernandez, and Buckley. And they're charged with the murder of Janine, residential burglary, home invasion, aggravated kidnapping, aggravated indecent liberties, deviant sexual assault, and rape. 
boy did this backfire. They're just going for a quick payday and then they're charged with the crime in the end. That is the definition of whoops. <laughs> so trial is set. I'm laughing because this is ridiculous. So trial is set for January 1985. And as they're preparing for trial, Detective John Sam is even more convinced that these three idiots did not do it. If they were convicted, these three guys are facing the death penalty. So he's like, that should scare them enough into confessing, turning on the others, becoming a state's witness and testifying against the others, but they didn't confess. All three maintained their innocence. And he's like, I'm not buying it. And Detective Sam believed them so much that he ended up resigning in protest. And he offered to testify on behalf of the defense. Good for him. Unfortunately, it didn't make a difference. So a joint trial went forward two years after Janine's death. And all of the evidence that they had was the shoddy boot print evidence and then witnesses that said they heard Hernandez and Cruz say they did it. That's it. The trial lasted 17 weeks. Yuck. The jury deadlocked on Stephen Buckley. I guess they didn't buy the boot print bullshit. So a mistrial was declared for Stephen Buckley and he was sent back to lock up to await a retrial. But Hernandez and Cruz were found guilty and sentenced to death. They got the death penalty. Now I think, at least I hope, that you've gathered by now that they didn't do it. Since it's 2022 at this point, we know the ending of the story. It was Brian Dugan. And we're gonna come back to these three innocent guys in a minute, but first, who the hell is Brian Dugan? Brian Dugan was born September 23rd, 1956, and his life was rough from day one, from, from minute, minute one. The story goes that when Brian was born, he was coming out early, before the doctor had gotten there. And in a panic, the nurse and an intern, in order to delay the birth, they shoved him back in. They were like, oh no, the doctor's not here, we're not ready, and they pushed they pushed him back into his mother and they strapped her legs shut to wait for the doctor. <laughs> it was the 50s, what can I say? That poor mother, can you, oh my, it's hard enough to get the head out. You're gonna make me do it twice? I can't make this shit up. After that traumatic birth, for Brian's entire childhood, he was, big shock, not quite right. <laughs> Brian was plagued with terrible headaches and chronic vomiting that he took medication for his entire childhood, and he was also a chronic bedwetter, among other issues, which we'll get to. But Brian was a little off, and it left his family wondering, huh, I wonder if shoving him back into his mother's vagine gave him a touch of the brain damage. There's no way to know. Brian had one sister and three brothers, and all of the siblings said that their parents were alcoholics. In 1967, the family moved to Lyle, Illinois. And Brian was a little shit. At age eight, Brian and a younger brother set the family garage on fire. At age 13, Brian started killing animals, one of which was a cat that he dumped gasoline all over and lit on fire. And that gives us the triad of sociopathy, chronic bedwetting, fire starting, and animal cruelty telltale signs of a future serial killer. At age 16, Brian was arrested for burglary and he was sent to a group home where he was allegedly sexually assaulted. When he was released, he attempted to molest his brother. Brian also admitted that around age 15 or 16, he was picked up at a grocery store by a stranger who was offering him a job. The stranger took him in his car, drove him to a remote area, sexually assaulted him, and forced him to perform oral sex. 
He then drove him back to the grocery store and dropped him off. Now, Brian didn't report the incident and he wasn't able to identify his attacker until in 1978, he saw his attacker on the news after he'd been arrested and was able to identify him as John Wayne Gacy. Do you remember John Wayne Gacy? He's pretty famous. He's the one that dressed up like a clown and molested teenage boys. You know the one? Now, we don't really know if this was true. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but Brian didn't bring this up until he was already arrested. So some people think he was just trying to fuck with police and like he was just trying to get attention. Some just think he was a liar. Lyle, Illinois wasn't John Wayne Gacy's typical hunting ground. Brian did fit the age and the type that John Wayne Gacy went for, but picking him up from a grocery store, the, the whole story he told, it didn't really fit in with Gacy's MO, so I don't know. We'll never know. I just thought it was an interesting tidbit in this story, but it's not really relevant to the end of the story, so let's move on. When Brian was 18, he attempted to kidnap a 10-year-old girl from the Lyle train station, but he was unsuccessful, luckily, and she got away. He was arrested for that attempt, but the charges were dropped for some bullshit technical issue. At age 19, Brian threatened to kill his sister and chop up his nephew. I'm not sure on what the charges were, but Brian was then sent to Menard Correctional Facility from 1979 to 1982 where he was also allegedly sexually assaulted. Now, just a few months after getting out from the Menard Correctional Facility, on February 25th, 1983, Brian Dugan found himself in Naperville, Illinois, in a light-colored rusty car, casing houses looking for a house to rob. He stopped at one house and asked for a screwdriver to fix his car. Brian then knocked on the Nicarico family front door. To his surprise, Janine, a 10-year-old girl, came to the door but wouldn't open it and said she wouldn't open the door for a stranger. After all, her mother had just yelled at her over lunch and told her not to open up a door for a stranger. Brian yelled through the door that he needed a screwdriver to fix his car, but Janine said no and refused to open up the door. Brian said that when he saw Janine, he knew that he, quote, had to have her. Fucking ew. Brian kicked the front door down, leaving a muddy footprint on the front door. He then ran into the house, chased Janine up the stairs. When Brian caught her, he put her on a bed and tied her up with a bed sheet. He then went outside and got his car to move it closer to the Nicarico house. He brought in duct tape from his car and he tied a towel around Janine's eyes with duct tape as a blindfold. He then carried her to his car and you know what happened next. Now, after Brian killed Janine, he lay low for a while, about a year. I mean, this was his first murder. He might get caught. He was pretty worried. But wouldn't you know it, a year after the murder, some other guys got arrested for it. What luck! He was free to keep on killing. And that's exactly what he did. On July 15th, 1984, Brian spotted 27-year-old Donna Schnorr, a nurse from Geneva, Illinois, in her car at a stoplight. And again, he said he just had to have her. Using his car, he ran Donna off the road. He then beat and raped Donna and drowned her in a quarry. Once again, he laid low for about a year. He was waiting for the shoe to drop, but it didn't. And when he heard that Hernandez and Cruz were sentenced to death for Janine's murder, he got another boost of confidence. So two months after those guys were sentenced to death, Brian went out hunting and he went on a hell of a crime spree. May 6th, 1985. Brian abducted and raped a 21-year-old woman from North Aurora, Sharon Grojack. He let her go and she survived. Then just a few weeks later, on May 28, 1985, Brian attempted but failed to abduct a 19-year-old woman who was walking along the side of the road. Then the next day, on May 29, 1985, Brian abducted and raped a 16-year-old girl, after which he drove her home. 
but she survived. Brian's crime spree ended on June 2nd, 1985 in Salmonock, Illinois. I grew up the next town over in Sandwich and my husband grew up in Salmonock. So this is the part of the story that I was familiar with and I had just talked about it with my in-laws recently. Now Salmonock is about 30 miles west of Naperville. Melissa Ackerman, age seven, and her best friend Opal Horton, age eight, were riding their bikes on a gravel road in Salmonock. Now Salmonock's a small town, it still is. I mean, right now the population's still under 2,000. I think in 85 it was around 1,000. But it's a cornfield small town, like where people feel safe letting their seven and eight year olds ride their bikes around. But unfortunately, Brian Dugan spotted them. He pulled up to the girls in his rusty light colored car and he got out and approached them. Brian quickly grabbed Opal and threw her into his car through the passenger window like a ball. Opal tried to get out of the car, but the door handles and the locks were disabled. She ended up getting over to the driver's side and she fell out of the driver's side window and actually tripped Brian as he was coming back with Melissa in his arms. As he's struggling to pick up Melissa, Opal managed to get up and run for it. She ran to a nearby John Deere dealership with all the big giant green tractors and she hid in one of those giant tractor tires and waited. Brian got Melissa into the car. Opal waited in the tractor tire until she heard the car start. And as she heard the car pulling away, she looked over the tire and she could see her friend Melissa's face in the car window as the car pulled away. Just a little fucking reminder, they were seven and eight. They're little babies. As soon as the car was out of sight, Opal sprinted to a nearby teacher's home, knocked on the door and said, my friend was just taken. They called the police right away and badass Opal was able to give an excellent description of Brian and his car. And right away, a cop from a nearby town recognized the description and the description of the car because he had just pulled Brian over like the day before for an expired license plate sticker. So the very next day they went to Brian's work and they arrested him in the parking lot. Melissa Ackerman's body was not found for several weeks. She had been raped and drowned in a drainage ditch. A strand of hair was found on a sleeping bag in Brian's car that matched Melissa. After Melissa's body was found, Brian Dugan confessed as part of a plea deal to take the death penalty off the table to all of his crimes from Melissa Ackerman all the way back to Donna Schnorr, the nurse. After he was charged with all of those crimes and he was sentenced to life in prison, he told prosecutors, by the way, I did commit one more murder and I will officially confess to Janine Nicarico's murder if you will take the death penalty off of the table again. Prosecutors were like, Oh, fuck. No? <laughs> we already have you in jail forever, and we already have two guys on death row for that murder, so that won't look good. So they basically just said, screw you, no. So then Brian told prosecutors, I will never publicly and officially confess to Janine Nicarico's murder unless you give me that deal. It was released to the public, however, in the media that Brian Dugan confessed to Janine's murder unofficially. But not everybody believed him. And even more than that, didn't want to believe him. We got two guys on death row and a third awaiting retrial. So Brian Dugan's in jail forever. Let's go back to Hernandez, Cruz, and Buckley. This is where shit gets so messy. In 1987, the charges against Stephen Buckley were dropped completely. And not because, you know, he was innocent or the lab work saying the boot was probably the right boot was shoddy. No, it was because the woman that wrote the lab report on that boot, who had testified in Buckley's previous trial, she had gone through several medical procedures for brain cancer and was left with memory loss and an inability to testify against Stephen Buckley again. So they just dropped the charges and just let him go after he sat in prison for three years. 
Now, Cruz and Hernandez had their convictions overturned by the Illinois Supreme Court in January 1988. Not because they were fucking innocent, but because it was determined that they should not have had a joint trial and that they would need to be tried again separately. So just like technical BS, they were retried separately despite public pressure to take Brian Dugan's confession to Janine Carico's murder seriously and to take it into consideration. They were like, oh, Dugan, no, 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 no. He's a liar and something, something. We can't admit that we made a mistake. And if we do, we'll look really, really fucking bad. Something, something. <laughs> and Illinois is the worst. <laughs> See, I grew up there so I can say it. Okay, February 1989, semen samples were taken from Janine Nicarico's body, and they also got samples from Hernandez, Cruz, Buckley, and Brian Dugan. But, big shock, only Brian Dugan matched the sample. However, remember, this is 1989. We wouldn't even have Law & Order SVU for another 10 years. DNA is in its infancy. They just didn't have the science down yet. So the lab said they could not conclusively say that it was definitely Brian Dugan. Cruz had his second trial in January and February, 1990. Why does this shit take so long? His lawyer argued that Brian Dugan killed Janine Nicarico and that he acted alone because, you know, that's what happened. But prosecution said, look, Brian Dugan's a liar. But if he did do it, he did it with Cruz and Hernandez. Despite the fact that they didn't know each other and they'd never met, and a neighbor described a white man in a light-colored rusty car with wired room glasses that fucking looks like this. It doesn't make any damn sense. But Cruz was convicted yet again and sentenced to death yet again. The jury at that time was asked, what do you think of Brian Dugan? And the jury responded with, Brian Dugan isn't on trial here. It's not the same at all, but it makes me feel like, like your boyfriend has been cheating on you with your best friend and you confront him and then he dumps you because you don't trust him. And you're like, you've been cheating on me with my best friend. And he says, Stacy has nothing to do with this. This is about us. This is about trust. <laughs> it has everything to do with fucking Brian Dugan. Like I get what they're saying, but it's, it's so blatantly obvious. They just don't want to admit that they made a mistake and put two innocent guys on death row, so they just doubled down. It was at this point that the Chicago Tribune began openly speculating that the DuPage County law enforcers cared more about protecting reputations than they cared about justice, which is facts. Hernandez's second trial was in May 1990. It lasted two weeks and it resulted in a hung jury. So a mistrial was declared and he was granted a third trial a year later in May 1991, where he was again convicted and sentenced to 80 years in prison instead of the death penalty this time. And this is fucking exhausting. Back to Cruz. He appealed again, but his conviction was upheld by the Illinois Supreme Court in December 1992. Assistant Attorney General Mary Bridget Kenny, who was assigned to oppose Cruz's second appeal, she sent a memo to the Illinois Attorney General Roland Burris, and in it she identified the many errors in the investigation and in the trial, including, quote, perjured testimony and fraudulent investigation by local officials. But Burris completely blew her off. And Kenny, she was so pissed about it that she resigned in protest. And in May 1993, <sighs> Stuff takes so fucking long. The court agreed to rehear Cruz's case. And a year after that in 1994, Cruz's conviction was overturned. And again, he was granted a new trial, which took place a year after that in October, 1995. I know, 
I know, I know. Now DNA has been around for a few more years now in 1995, so more DNA testing was done for Cruz's one millionth trial. And this time it showed conclusively that the DNA on Janine Carico's body matched Brian Dugan. Definitely. And only Brian Dugan. And on top of that, a sheriff's lieutenant who originally testified in the first two trials recanted his statement. He had testified previously that he received a phone call from detectives saying that Hernandez and Cruz had said things about Janine DeCarico's murder. And that was all the evidence that they had on those two guys. People talking about how they said they killed Janine DeCarico. But in Cruz's third trial, this guy admitted that he did not hear Cruz and Hernandez talk about the murder and that he was actually in Florida on the day that he said he got the phone call from the detectives who said that they heard Cruz and Hernandez talk about the murder, so he couldn't have actually taken that call. And I'm sorry, but he should be in jail. I don't care how you word it. He lied under oath and two guys were on death row for a decade because of his fat mouth. Now this trial was different. There was only a judge, there was no jury. And this judge had a fucking brain, so he acquitted Cruz of all charges. And he also called the initial investigation sloppy. Where's the lie? A month later, the charges against Hernandez were also dropped for the same reasons. These two guys were on death row for a decade for a crime they did not commit. And Stephen Buckley was in jail for three years for a crime he didn't commit. And that is so fucked. After their release, the sheriff's department did an internal investigation, but it was found that no one in the department did anything wrong, which is hilarious. In December 1996, seven DuPage County law enforcement officials, including three prosecutors and four deputies, were indicted by a grand jury on charges of conspiracy to convict Cruz and Hernandez, despite being aware of exculpatory evidence. After many court proceedings and three and a half years, all seven had been acquitted of all charges. So they got away with it, which is gross. After Cruz, Hernandez, and Buckley were exonerated, Governor George Ryan imposed a moratorium on the death penalty. The three men filed a civil suit against DuPage County, and they were awarded $3.5 million in the year 2000. Not enough. But honestly, no amount of money is gonna make up for a decade lost. Like, they lost their 20s, an entire decade. And just the stress of being on death row and all of those retrials, like, oh my God. Can you imagine? In November 2005, Brian Dugan was officially charged with the murder of Janine Carico, and Brian officially pled guilty on July 22nd, 2009 for the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Janine. On November 11th, 2009, Dugan was sentenced to death, and his execution date was set for February 25th, 2010, which would have been exactly 27 years to the day after Janine's death. However, his execution was pushed back and Governor Pat Quinn actually signed legislation to abolish the death penalty in Illinois in 2011. And he commuted the death sentence for Dugan and 14 other death row inmates to life in prison without parole. Dugan is now in his 60s, serving out his sentence in the Stateville Correctional Center outside of Joliet, Illinois, and he will die in prison. What a mess. I'm actually super disappointed that there were no repercussions for the DuPage County officials who completely blew this just to protect their reputations. Illinois sucks. <laughs> that is the story of Brian Dugan and the complete shit show that went down after he committed his first murder in 1983. 
And if I don't upload next week, it's because a DuPage County official has run me off the road for running my fat mouth. Thank you for listening to Cleaning and Crime. If you'd like more content from me or you want to see the cleaning side of things, check me out on YouTube or TikTok or follow my socials, all of which are under the name C. Elise, S-E-E-E-L-I-S-E. If you have any questions or any case ideas that you'd like to share, email me at cleanclean at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. These episodes include my personal opinions, and all information is compiled by me using references that are publicly available. Sources are included in the show notes. All parties described are innocent until proven guilty. See you next time.